Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Mac Jack and Jim Big Football Show. As we go to our last show in this series, changing our format next week to this week in sports. And as my dad always said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, you guys, football season is over, and as far as the games go anyway, right? So we'll be having the free agency and the draft and the NFL We'll keep near the top of the news as it always does while the other sports play um, still in the offseason um, more popular than any other sport easily. So the, these stories will be coming out. And as I said, the draft will be coming up out and there'll be a huge spectacle as it has been recently. And we'll all tune in to watch that. In fact, on Northeast Streaming Sports, we'll be having live feeds coming in from the draft. Philly sports guy, maybe Captain Jack will be streaming live as they go over the draft and, and everything that happens there. But, you know, this special we're going to run today is 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 the history of the NFL. And, folks, before all this grandeur and majesty of the NFL, way back when, when it first started in the 1920s, it was basically a recreational game that they wanted to make professional was regional teams in different states that were playing each other. It was about eight teams that started out. And they all got together in the 1920s in Canton, Ohio. Some of the guys there were Curly Lambeau, George Hallis. Jim Thorpe was the first president, believe it or not, of the NFL. And they got together and they wanted to start a league. NFL was just a form of rugby at the time. I mean, it had the same shape rugby ball. And, you know, we talk about running quarterbacks like it's something new. Well, back then, that's mainly what the quarterbacks did was run with the football. Single wing. Yes, they did. And that's exactly right, Jim. So it's not new. The forward pass, believe it or not, didn't become legal until 1933 that you could pass anywhere behind the line of scrimmage. So for 13, 13 years, the forward pass was really not something that the NFL did. It really was started back in college. If you want to, if you want to be accurate, but the NFL didn't adopt it as a legal pass anywhere behind this uh, line of scrimmage until 1933. So, with this meeting of this group of guys, it's interesting because it was a lot like youth football today, right? They had sponsors that you had on their jerseys, you know, whether it was from a steel mill or a packing place, Green Bay Packers. Uh, these. These teams were sponsored that way. There was no TV, no internet, no cable, nothing like that. It was just a bunch of guys that loved playing this new form of sport that resembled rugby. The ball didn't even change for a few years. It was a rugby ball. As I said. They made it narrower. So you could throw the ball. So in almost 123 years, the NFL has become something we see today, right? I mean, if you think about it, 
The shotgun was used way back when, too. Tom Landry bought it back in the 70s, but it was used way before that. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. We all think everything is new. It's not. It's recycled. It's hard to come up with new ideas. It really is. Yeah, it is. So, guys, when it first started, and and I'm gonna, I want to get into the decor daily. Now the Chicago Bears, the Green Bay Acme Packers, is what they were originally called. Now the Green Bay Packers. That's the only two surviving teams from the original. I think it was eight teams. When the AFC or AFL at the time was called something else, it was the, uh, if I want to see if I can get this right, most teams folded, uh, last one in 1952. The All-American Football Conference uh, was a little bit more popular at the time. The 49ers and the Browns came into the league uh, way back when. And those were the last two surviving teams of that American Conference. The Giants joined in 1925. And, of course, other teams moved and changed their names, Detroit and, and, and all that stuff. And it's interesting some of the names that they had, guys. Right? I go to the original eight. You had the, Al, Alcorn, the Akron, I'm saying right, Akron Pros, the Columbus Panhandlers, Buffalo, Dayton uh, Triangles, the Rock Island Independents, the Muncie Flyers, the Toledo Maroons, Rochester so Jefferson. So they had four teams in uh, Ohio, huh? Yes, they did. Columbus Panhandlers. The Panhandlers. It sounds like you're begging for a win. (laughs) The Maroons I love, too. I mean, I guess they weren't that good. So they call themselves the Maroons. This changed, of course. And if if you got to remember, George Hallis, Curly Lambeau were not only owners. They were the GMs and they were players on the team. I, I, resembling somewhat what semi-pro football is today. George Ellis was a great athlete. But he was owner and a GM. Curly Lambeau, coach, owner, GM. So this is how it originally started, folks. It's not what you see today. In 1958, Jack's mentioned this before, the greatest game ever played when the Colts played uh, the Giants. Johnny Unice against that great Giants defense, and they won in overtime. And it was nationally televised in 1958. That really started it all. That started the rise of the National Football League. And, of course, the AFLs formed around 1960. And the New York Jets, originally known as the New York Titans, they became the Jets a little bit very quickly after that. Um, You know, the last franchise at that time was the New England Patriots, believe it or not. They're the last team in the AFL to get awarded a franchise. Yeah, Because the Cowboys came in 1960, correct? 1960, and we're going to cover the Cowboys. Now, you mentioned George Hallis a couple of times, Matt. He commanded so much power for decades. He was more powerful than the commissioner until Pete Rozelle came along. And Pete Rozelle had to discipline the Bears for a small infraction. But he told George Hallis to meet him, you know, in New York for the meeting. And Hallis told Rozelle, to come and meet him in his office, and Roselle said no. So he stood up to George Hallis. So that was like a turning point. So the first truly powerful commissioner who kind of had a foothold in things, you know, was probably Pete Roselle. Now, Paul was, Brown was very uh, powerful too. Yeah, right? oh yeah, oh yeah. Paul Brown, he, he uh, believe it or not, he came in from the, uh, the other league, and of course the NFL, 
NFL or and later the the uh, the it became the NFC, of course. That was supposed to be the, the, the toughest league. Paul Brown came out of the AAFC where he was undefeated. He was really the first undefeated football team uh, in history. It wasn't the Miami Dolphins. In Super Bowl history, it's the Miami Dolphins. And he came in in 1958 and promptly won the NFL championship with his team. So, I mean, that team was, was unbelievable. Paul Brown was unbelievable. They named the team after him. He later went out to start the Cincinnati Bengals football franchise yes. as their coach. So, so 1958, big, big year. AFL uh, coming into existence, huge. 1969, of course, the first Super Bowl where the AFL, uh, the AFL at the time won with, John, with uh, Joe Namath and that great Jet defense. So that was the key moments as you go through the decades and, and the transition from football from rugby into football and the forward pass. And as I said, all these things happened a long time ago, the the shotgun, the running quarterbacks. It's not new. The only thing that's changed is the amount of games, the ball has changed a little bit more, and the rules. The rules are what have changed what has changed football. So we got Pags backstage right now. We're going to talk a little bit about the Eagles and the history of the Eagles. And you'll be surprised how they got their name. It wasn't because they're a big, bad bird. That's not where the name came from. But we'll bring Pags on and bring Pags into Philadelphia into the conversation. Hey, how you doing, Pags? Good morning, guys. How are you? Good, good. So, Pags, we were talking about how the NFL started as basically rugby, a running game. And uh, running quarterbacks, and then the shotgun came along, and then there was the four, you know, the four pass became legal. The Eagles came into existence, if I'm not mistaken, 1933. That is correct. And you know, do you realize where the Eagles got their name from? No, no, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna educate me here a little bit. Believe it or not, believe it or not, Pags. The Eagles didn't get its name because they got a big, mean bird. It came from the FDR uh, Act, the Working Act, that had the, the the nickname of it was called the Blue Eagle. So in tribute to FDR, they named the team the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, it didn't hurt that the Eagle is a powerful bird, but that's originally where the name came from. And if you think about it, guys, football's trying to take hold, and it had to go through two world wars. The whole thing almost fell apart. World War One when it first started, and then World War Two, uh, you know, it took away all the players. And again, it went through a lot of the, the league almost didn't make it quite a few times, but it held in there. So, Pat, well, I mean, you got to go back to Roosevelt. Roosevelt really saved the game of football back in the early 1900s because oh, he enjoyed about, the game. You're talking about Teddy, yeah, yeah. I yeah. enjoyed the game, but there was too many deaths that were happening. You would be yes. more dying on the field. Yes, yes, that's how they formed the NCAA. No, guys, but ironically, college football was popular before the NFL gained popularity. Really? So it wasn't yes. like football wasn't popular. It was the NFL who finally started coming on in the late 50s. But before that, college was big in the United States. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you and think about it, in, in the 1940s, in 1943, 44, and 45, the number one and the number two team were Army and Navy. Right. For, you know, for a number right. of years, 
They were both one and two, which is the reason why the Army-Navy game is such a big rivalry. I mean, it was a, always a big rivalry, but it was those during those years, during the you know, first or the Second World War, where they were getting everybody was going to those you know colleges. They had the best of the best. Sure, sure. So tell us a little about the Eagles, uh, Pags, and their four, I think it's four championships. And ironically, they're all against the Green Bay Packers. Uh, uh, so, I mean, they did. They won in 48 and 49 uh, and 1960. Uh, and, you know, 48 and 49, there was a guy who uh, the only jersey ever, the only eagle to ever wear the jersey number 15, Steve Van Buren. Yes. For some reason, nobody ever wore it before he got there. And then once he got there, he chose the number 15. I guess 15 wasn't a popular number. Uh, he chose that number, and he was the only one to ever wear that jersey for the Philadelphia Eagles because it's retired. Uh, and he was the reason why. And then, of course, Chuck Benarek joined the team in 49. So uh, I did some research, and I started doing the draft. Who were the Eagles' best draft picks? And uh, besides doing their very first draft, because the very first draft was held in 1936, and the, they, Eagles – had the very first pick in that draft because they stunk for 33, 34, and 35. Uh, so their very first pick ever in the NFL draft was Jay Berwanger. And he was out of, the, out of Chicago, college Chicago. And I don't even know what position he had because they showed the position as B. And I don't know what B meant. <laughs> Because everybody was a B or an offensive lineman, like you had a tackle, you know, or yeah. You know, so I'm not exactly sure because I think he Probably played both back. sides. B meant both ways. Well, even the NFL draft, it took so long for it to gain in popularity. For example, in 1986, I'm working in Manhattan. And I have a lunch break, and the NFL draft is taking place like a block and a half or so away from where I was. I just go in during the first round of the draft. I grab a seat. I'm watching it. They're available seats. It, you know, it's in a hotel. And it was no big deal. Now, imagine just trying, wandering in and just getting a seat for the NFL draft. I mean, yes, you yeah. can. You Make can. I have, to, I have to. Oh, my God. The, the amount of stuff I have to do to sneak into the draft. Because I they don't let me in. I got to sneak <laughs> in. You know, and it's hard to sneak in when you look like me. At dra on draft day, you know what I mean. It's, so it's it's funny how that all worked out. But part but, of the uh, history, guys, when did the draft actually? I don't mean the actual draft picking players, but when did the spectacle start? When was the public allowed in to view it? How was it done early on? I think a player players heard about about it two days later that they were drafted in some cases. Nineteen ninety four. That's when they switched it from uh, 18 rounds to seven rounds. And they invited the well, public. Well, Jim, the way Jim was 1983, right? Yeah, and we were well, called. How did you hear yeah. about it? When you were how did I hear about I was picked by the Cowboys? Yeah. You can watch it on ESPN. You, did they someone call you before your name was announced? They called me when my name was announced. So and how they, about a minute before or what? 
No, when I my name was announced, they called me. Gil Brandt called me and told me, but he had told me a week before the draft that he was going to draft me. He had but told you, me. you can't necessarily believe that. No, you can't. No, you can't because yeah. you don't know how everything's going to fall. But he did call me immediately because I had to get on a plane from um, Tempe to go to Dallas to do the press conference. And what round were you drafted in, Jim? Number one, Number I was in 23rd pick in the first round. Pags, we would have to forgive Gil Brand if he called Jim and said, sorry, Jim, I have to go back on my word. Dan Marino's available. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then they wouldn't have won any Super Bowls. There you go. <laughs> but uh, so it's been interesting to find out, like, you know, when, when you go back and you take a look at the history of the draft and such and, you know, uh, specifically the Eagles, because I, I got to imagine there's so much history that goes back with the draft. And, you know, the, the spectacle that it is today was really started by Ron Jaworski. I mean, because it used to be at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And then they uh, on occasion they would do it over in Chicago. But that was it. It was like very closed off to the public. And Ron Jaworski said, you know what? I'd love for it to come to Philadelphia. We could do this on the steps of the art museum. And we could make this a real big to-do. And, you know, the, the NFL said, okay. Originally, it was supposed to be a two-year contract. Uh, it was it was so well-received that they says, okay, I guess we're going to need to do this for every football team. So, of course, Dallas was second on the list because Jerry Jones paid the most money for it. And, <laughs> and next year was was in Dallas. You know, it's... <laughs> I mean, but that's how that's how it worked, though. I mean, it was a money thing because somebody had to pay for it all. Well, sure. You know what I mean? It wasn't, well, who's paying for it this year in Vegas? Say again? Uh, John, I mean, um, who's paying for it in Vegas this year? Because it's in well, Vegas. I, got, right? I mean, so now there's lots of sponsors. So, but that first one, they didn't know what was going to happen. You know, Jerry said, okay, the second one, I mean, that second one was all done in the stadium, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes, in AT&T Stadium. So, mm -hmm. and, and that was that was just, you know, part of the reason. He's like, okay, well, we're going to have it here. And then I went, my first draft that I've gone to, I mean, I went down to the one in Philadelphia, but I, I went to the one in Tennessee. And I, even though Philadelphia was the first and one of the best, Tennessee was the when we went to Nashville. Oh my God, that was an amazing event. It was just so much fun. Uh, and then, of course, there was supposed to be Vegas the following year, but COVID stepped in. And then Cleveland, Cleveland was a lot of fun as well. Uh, going to this, you know, and now we're going back to Vegas this year. Next year's Kansas City. And I think it just goes on and on where they're going to mm -hmm. have these big events where they're including the public, mm -hmm. you know, where you are able to. They're, the teams are allowed to have 12 people go to the go and sit inside and announce the draft picks and things of that nature. So it's it, they've really started to try to include the fan in the process of this, which makes it a lot of fun. So so when as the as the Eagles, you know, as I said, they beat the Packers a few times and they go on to play the Super Bowl in the Super Bowl era. Uh, they lose to the Raiders. Um, and not a bad game either, really. If you if you watched the game, it wasn't a bad game. And that, of course, uh, you know, was with with Ron Jaworski, Wilbert Montgomery. Um, you know, it, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty good game. Let's put it that way. The Raiders had a very good team that year. And then you guys go back 
And your second Super Bowl, if I believe, was against the Patriots, if I'm correct. That um, is correct. And you guys almost you guys were within one score of, of winning that game, and then finally got over the hump and did beat the Patriots. Um, uh, you know, with Nick Foles filling in. So, I mean, if you think about it, you put you your Eagle team beat two of the biggest dynasties in football history, the Packers and and the Patriots. So, hey, we are the ones that are able to say that we, uh, the Eagles, are the only team to give Vince Lombardi a playoff loss. But but let me tell you what's wrong with the NFL. It doesn't completely embrace embrace its history. To a lot of people, championship games began with Super Bowl one. So like the 1960 Eagles who beat the Packers, you know, they've gotten a little lost in history. It's very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Well, especially if you ask any Cowboy fans. The great Jim Brown a few years later, the Cleveland Browns shut out the Baltimore Colts and win a championship, but it wasn't technically a Super Bowl game. Some people, they kind of look at it a little differently. Like, it's unfortunate football hasn't begun to them until the Super Bowl game starts. Jack, I was five years old in 1966. I don't even remember the first No, season. no, but but things <laughs> that happened in other sports, like the New York Yankees in the early like, 1950s, we embraced. You're right, though, you're right. We don't embrace the NFL champ. Uh, the great Otto Graham. We talk about who's the greatest quarterback of all time. Oh, Tom Brady has seven rings. Well, Otto Graham has 11 championships. Shouldn't he be rated ahead of Tom Brady if we're going to use that as a yardstick? I mean, and we, we will be talking about autogram, believe it or not, later on in the show. Um, so, I mean, Keith ain't here and Pags is. So before Robert gets in here, let me tell you a little bit about the Patriots. Right, The Patriots uh, were formed in 1959. Hmm. Executive Billy Sul- Sullivan of, Sul- of Sullivan Brothers Printing, their printers, was awarded the eighth and final uh, franchise. Players like Gino Capaletti, Jim Nance, Nick Bonacani were on that original football team. And they finally, they had Jim Plunkett there also. They drafted him. He was a Heisman Trophy winner. Rookie of the year. Ended up leaving the Patriots, though. And if you think about it, their Super Bowl in 1985 against that Chicago Bear defense I mean, they, they, you know, they, they didn't have, um, man, I, I'm losing some names in my head here. Ed Hendricks, Mike Haynes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that was some tremendous. Sam Bam Cunningham. I mean, uh, Ron Francis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. They, had, they had some great players. That Bear, that bear team. Yeah. And that bear, te- that, bear, that bear team was awesome. They went up against the Packers when Bill Parcells got there. They were ahead of Green Bay in the first half. From what I heard, Bill Parcells was working with the Jets trying to get over there the next year, and that was caused the big rift between Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells because Bill Belichick did not feel that was right and was very upset with Parcells talking to the Jets when they were preparing for the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. But Green Bay came back, and, and of course, with Brett Favre won that Super Bowl. But, of course, Bill Belichick goes over there, 2002, brand-new stadium, um, and – the rest is history, as they say, as the Patriots became and still are probably the best, the, the, uh, the I would say the best modern day um, legacy out there as far as football goes. So, so anyway, guys, you know, I, again, I think that P- 
people should know this stuff. I mean, I was going to bring up some old videos of the single wing you're talking about, Jim, but that would have been too See, much. I played in the single wing in high school. It was an unbalanced line. It was an unbalanced line. You had your quarterback. When we talk about the shotgun, the car, the tail, they called him a tailback. They had a tailback, the wing back, and the halfback in the backfield. And we played an unbalanced. I was tight end, and it was hard to play. It was hard to play. And and again, that's the quarterbacks were running quarterbacks back yep, then. Yeah. So so we got Robert coming in uh, here in, in in a quick second. So who do you think, Pags? Before we let you go, was the most influential Eagles player that you guys had? Not the best, the most influential. The most influential player. Wow, ever. I mean, I guess yeah. the the mentality of how the Eagles were going to be measured by throughout history, Chuck Bednarik. I agree with that without a doubt. I he was the grit. He was he was the perfect working class athlete because he played both sides. He never took a play off. He was always, you know. You know, I, 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 may, I have this saying as the Philly sports guy. I bring it every play of every game all day. And that epitomizes Chuck Bednarik. And the city took hold not only of him, of that whole personality. And it's really how we have – it's still the same personality we have now 60 years later. <laughs> Guys, that iconic photo of Chuck Bednarik standing over Frank Gifford when he tackled him. And Pat Summerall, the giant kicker, later became the fam famous broadcaster, honestly thought that Frank Gifford had gotten killed because they'd gotten an ambulance for someone else, but he thought it was for Gifford. And the hit was devastating. It put Gifford out for the whole season. And Gifford always hated it and would never autograph a photo of that. He hated it. He said he was off balance. But the way Bednarik stood over him, it was an iconic photo. I mean, uh, one of the great NFL photos, maybe one of the most distasteful photos. It, it depends how you want to look at it. Yeah, because, I mean, it, was, it looked like he was cheering over top of him. Yeah. And he yeah. looked dead in the picture. It was interesting. Uh, it was, I had the uh, privilege and honor to be coached by Ernie Stockman, the Hall of Famer and everything. And he would always, because everybody talked about Sam Huff and, and how tough and how good Sam Huff. And Ernie would always say, no, Beck Narek was a better player. I, I can't believe I'm saying something. Sam good. Huff was, reportedly was scared. I mean, he would be scared to go against Jimmy, the great Jimmy Brown, because Jimmy yeah. Brown would initiate contact. He yes. was so great. Yeah. Chuck Bednarik was the one guy who said with Jimmy, who would take Jimmy Brown head on, you know, and G, mm -hmm. you know, Jimmy Brown had the great Jim Brown had no edge on Chuck Bednarik on those head on, you know, uh, collisions. Yeah. yeah. He said Bednarik was way tougher than Huff, but Huff was obviously in a media central in New York being in New York. And that's why Huff got all the, uh, you know, accolades, but he said Bednarik was way tougher. Uh, and it was an excellent, excellent choice. I would have said that's who exactly who I would have said, Pags. I mean, no, no quarterback, no running back, no wide receiver, no defensive back. 
It's a guy who played center, middle linebacker, and was tough as nails. And that well, you talked about Mac about finding guys, suspending them. Had Pat said Carson Wentz as his answer, I would have recommended the suspension <laughs> from the show. <laughs> Boy, I'm supposed to represent the fans of Philadelphia. And listen, when you say who's the most influential, it took me a second to try to think about it, but it only goes to one person. I mean, yeah. like I said, he his attitude defines a city still even 60 years later you know, so it, it's you know and it's still that way agree pags agree pags thanks for coming on i'll hit you off air again uh we'll see you on friday and as always man enjoy your sunday i i am i'm, I'm all excited to watch the show you're gonna see me comment left and right here so beautiful beautiful here, love we go. here. here we go all right, Pags. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Have a good one. All right. Take care, guys. All right, Pags. Fly away, Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> there's Pags. And, man, what a pick. I would. That's exactly the person I would have said. I'm not so. sure how many years Reggie White played for the Eagles. He didn't Reggie quite White play for them. Well, yeah, you, can, you can argue about Reggie White and McNarrick, but. McNerick is obviously legendary. Reggie White was legendary, but I, you can't argue. Had no, the Eagles won that one Super Bowl game that Don, Donovan McNabb quarterback? Yeah, you know, who knows? He maybe would have been in the discussion. Yeah, could have been. So up with us right now, as comes in every Sunday, the great Robert Butler from Sportscope, and he's going to be part of this conversation, folks. So, so I got some really, I think, good questions. For him and we'll get his opinions and his thoughts on it. And Robert, as I told you off air, I'll let you know we're doing the history of the NFL. Yeah. And historically, Robert, right? The, the, I, I mentioned before uh, you came on the two original teams from the, the original eight that are still around on different names as the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers from the AFL is the 49ers and the Browns. Those are the two original teams for all the teams they had over in the uh, in the uh, American Football League. So, and, and of course, you don't have to pick those two, but historically, yeah. what franchise do you think is the best franchise in football? You know, I, I think it's the Steelers. Uh, third most playoff appearances in NFL history. They're tied for sixth most Super Bowl wins. Uh, three head coaches since 1969. So the head coaches didn't leave and they didn't fire them. So the head coach is not leaving. That tells me it's a good place to work, you know, and not firing them. It says that there's stability, there's patience there. Uh, throughout my life, I, I've never seen the Steelers go through a, a long dry spell. If you just look through each decade, I mean, maybe you can make an argument for the 80s, perhaps. But the Steelers just seem to be I – mean, I know it's a close race between the Packers, you know, and maybe the Giants. But the Steelers, man. But I'm not, I'm not arguing with your choice, Rob, but until the Super Bowl era, the Steelers, they weren't good at all. No, they weren't like a tradition-rich team like the Chicago Bears. Yeah. yeah, even their fans used to throw stuff at them. So, yeah. Well, right. I, 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 have, I, 
in the present day era, the Steelers would have been. Yeah, I do choice. too. I, I think if you're going to talk historically from the beginning to now, I think Roberts got it right. And I'm going to show you a picture of the Steelers, what they did to Y.A. Tittle in a little bit. But, <laughs> but so, 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 so the Steelers, uh, it's a great choice to me, as you said, stability. Yeah. The Rooney family is, I mean, they just hired Brian Flores as a defensive yeah. coordinator. They, I mean, they get it. They get it. They understand. They cut John Unitas, if you want to they talk about well, that. Well, that's why they weren't good for a while. But anyway, you know, I mean, they get it. They get the landscape. They get the social part of it. And that, and they get the players and the coaches. And that's why people, they love playing for them. And that's why the fans love the Steelers. I mean, if yeah. you got coaches going in and out, how can you get a fan base excited? Right? I mean, it only makes sense. If I'm always rebuilding – I mean, I lose interest. I'm tired of rebuilding, right? Jet fans, Giant fans right. now, and other teams. But you got stability there, and you're always competitive. Always got a chance. And that, to me, to me, is just a great franchise, number one, easily. Now, there's only one team in the league that is a public team, uh, per se, yeah. Robert. Green Bay the Green Bay Packers. The fans actually have the shares and own the team. Do they got oh, that one? Well, you know, guys, uh, I was looking at that uh, since the 20s. The fans, they've been grandfathered in. It's a nonprofit. Uh, they are the smallest market of all pro sports, for what I found out. Uh, but it, it, I do think it's okay for them to be grandfathered in. Uh, look at the Super Bowl. Reporters said that they had more Bengal fans than, than Ram fans. And that was a Rams home Super Bowl in the stadium. I've heard that from more than one report. So we talk about loyalty. Those people show up sub-zero temperatures to watch these playoff games. It, I, I really think it's a good thing for the league to have a, a team in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, the local scene, they don't have a problem. Uh, they sold shares in 2011 to renovate their stadium. They had no issue selling those shares to the fan base. I think they're a good story. I think if they did go to an owner, you know, they're going to move them out of Green Bay. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. I mean, I, I, to me that talk about community. Yeah. I mean, I mean, if you want a renovation, the owners are the fans. If you want to add on, if you want to do something, it's the fans. You ain't got to worry about – and, I mean, the fans run the government, right? Yeah. Basically, the people of Green Bay run the government. You, you make an interesting yeah. point about that because, um, like I, we talked uh, previously, my son won two great cups in Winnipeg, and uh, Winnipeg is community-owned like that. So that makes it like the fans own the, yeah. the team. And when you have it like that – you just don't have local fans. You have worldwide fans that own part of Green Bay, which is an interesting thing. Yeah. Really also, know. you know, it's interesting too when a player becomes a free agent. I mean, who would want to live in Green Bay as opposed to Miami or Tampa? Yet, all factors being equal, the Green Bay Packer franchise is so historical and so top of the line. Players might actually choose to go to the Packers, even though they have no disrespect to Green Bay, even though they'd have to live around the area as opposed to living in a more appealing city. Isn't that correct, Jim? Yeah, yeah, because you did a history of it. But 
if you remember, Lombardi was really the Green Bay Packers because just like uh, Max said before, some of these teams weren't very successful until they got the right coaches in there. Chuck Noll, obviously, we talked about it with the Steelers. They were a terrible franchise. Uh, Green Bay before Lombardi got there and those things, and they built those programs. Well, Curly Lambeau, so they had two iconic coaches. Yeah. But yeah. between them, they struggled. They struggled. They did. They did. And then, uh, well, obviously, the Steelers, you know, because Ernie said their their fans would throw things at them because uh, Lynn Dawson was there. <laughs> yeah. So, and the Steelers, when he was with the Steelers, so. Packers have the most uh, playoff appearances in NFL history. They were a close second in the greatest franchise. Uh, I mean, yeah, you could say Dallas and, of course, New England. Well, Dallas struggled for uh, many years, even Coach Landry. But then they got everything in the uh, late 60s, most of the 70s. They got strong. And then in the 80s, we struggled again. We made a – I think we only made three playoffs in the 80s. Yeah. So Robert, we we talk yeah. about, of course, we talk we talk about you know players from the past playing today, maybe the players from today playing in yesterday, and you take people like Johnny Unitas and J- and Jack brought up Otto Graham. Let yeah. me give you some numbers for Johnny Unitas. And this was a running league, remember? In 1958, he had 2,000 yards. In 1959, he threw for 2,899 yards. In 1960, he threw for 3,000 yards. In 1963, he threw for 3,481 yards. Now, we're talking 12, maybe 14 games. Yeah. With the rules they were, the rules the way they were, that you could absolutely kill the quarterback. And Otto Graham, who not only in one game ran for 99 yards, but threw for 278 he could flick his wrist and throw the ball for an average of 10.5 yards uh, per play, and he had a 112 passer rating, 13,000-something yards in 11 years in a running league. Do you think with the rules the way they are today and some of them early great-throwing quarterbacks, I mean, there were a lot of them too, Daryl LaMonica, uh, the Matt Bomber, I mean, you, uh, you, uh, John Adel, these guys could throw the ball. Yeah. Do you think today they could they could have maybe as good seasons as they did back then or maybe better? Well, absolutely. You think about it today. You've got modern-day trainers, uh, education. Uh, uh, we, you talked about this before, Mac, yourself. Uh, the money where the guys can to train year-round. Uh, they don't have to go sell cars in the offseason, right? I, I think those guys will flourish. Johnny Unitas, I was watching some highlights of him some years ago, and I was thinking – no wonder Peyton Manning looks up to this guy. He was so far ahead of his time. It's unbelievable. You talk about Otto Graham, uh, somebody being able to rush in that era when you have so much uh, dirty play <laughs> that was legal. Yeah. Uh, you do the flip side. I don't know if, if, if a Tom Brady could play this 45 years old uh, back in those days, Jim, you because know, he'd been a defensive player, right? I, uh, I don't know if Lamar Jackson. <laughs> well, they'd be allowed to hit him. They'd be allowed to hit him at that time. It's different oh, now. The I mean, um, like I said, I I had the opportunity to be coached by Ernie Stockner, and he would take us in there and show us how they played in the '60s. 
And you should have seen those DBs. They beat the receivers up in every position, just like you guys are saying. It was physical. There were no rules. The rules were don't get hurt. <laughs> Clotheslining. I know. <laughs> you know, you know. You know, I don't know, and I, I'm I'm being totally honest here. I don't know if Tom Brady would have made it or Patrick Mahomes would have made it back then. Let me show you a quick picture. Oh, come on, man. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let me roll a little bit. Let me show you a quick picture of what happened to Y.E. Tibble after a game. This is what he looked like, guys. Let's see if I can bring it up here. Oh, oh I remember God. that. That's one of the iconic pictures. This is what it looked like after a game. Bloodied head, bloodied nose. This the Pittsburgh Steelers is the one that did this to him. And this, he looked like he got fight with a game. Mm -hmm. Quarterbacks were hit. Joe Namath. I didn't have the other one of this is this is what Ted Hendricks would do to Joe Namath. Ted Hendricks, the mad star. If you wow. did that today, you would be kicked out of the league. Yeah, that looks like I mean, this seeing is, that Brian Tittle something out of World War II, Mac. It doesn't it? Can you imagine? Can you imagine Tom Brady getting hit like this constantly? You think he would have lasted? I don't know. I'm serious. Yeah. He has no mobility. You say that. You say that, and I, I, I hear what you're saying, but these quarterbacks did last in that era. I think Tom Brady would have found a way to last. Because I do think he was he's one of I, the I, best quarterbacks ever. But, but guys, he, at, at listen, no, I'm listen. <laughs> no. Quarterbacks called their own plays at that time. Shoot, okay? Jim Kelly called his own so plays. So they could have improvised and and also mm -hmm. there was less emphasis put on turnovers. Uh, you know, guy like a quarterback like Joe Namath, who was a gunslinger, would throw five interceptions, but he'd be starting the next week. In this day and age, quarterback throws five interceptions. He's not lasting, but it was encouraged to be a gunslinger, to be aggressive. Yeah. You know, we talked about it 20 All years I'm ago. Saying, we were guys, in is that? Uh, go ahead. Would you go so ahead? No, go ahead, sorry. Oh, I was going to say that a okay, guy like what, John what, Elway. It, I thought I thought he was like error proof. <laughs> he had the, the the intelligence and the the athletic ability. I think he could survive anything from what the Raiders did to him. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, just as recently, just as just as recently as what the Saints did to Brett Farr in that championship, they let him play, and he took a beating. What the San Francisco 49ers did to Eli Manning. I mean, this is pretty recent. These rules have changed recently, and and a lot of it has to do with Tom Brady, whether you like it or not. You can't yeah. hit him below the knees. You can't hit him. You can't yeah. push him. You can't, right. you can't call him out listen, of listen. name. Jim could tell you, especially from, I'm sure, when he played high school in college, the mentality of the players were knock the quarterback out of the game. That was oh, the yeah. mentality at the time. Now, no if you get hurt set talking about knocking the quarterback out of the game. They overhear you say it. You're going to get suspended. You're right. You're exactly right. We were, hey, that was the design. If you disrupt the quarterback, and I mean really disrupt him, then you're going to um, have an opportunity to win games because you're right. You had great quarterbacks in Montana's, the Elways, the Marinos, guys like that in my era. And then later on, 
you had some really good ones, the Randall Cunninghams. Uh, you had uh, Bill Sims and it, those guys. None of the Jets, sorry, uh, after name of them. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, McNair, McNair, but you did have yeah. some really great quarterbacks, Kurt Warner and guys like that. And as the game, just like you said, a lot of these rules were put in for Brady, the Brady rules. Yeah. Because those guys and they are. And, and you know something, guys? I'm not saying that Tom Brady. I'm not saying Tom Brady couldn't play. No. I'm just saying he. Hey, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt. He, neither would be, Mahomes be as effective as he is today yeah. because they would be constantly getting hit. Matt, and, what about and, the release and, and, of a quarterback? Say again. What do you mean? Uh, the release, like a Dan Marino. He would have found a way not to get hit and because he released the ball so quick. Well, Dan Marino, Dan, Marino was, Dan Marino was playing. Dan Marino playing during those years was still playing against guys that could hit him, Jack. I mean, he had to get rid of the ball fast, which was very smart. And that's why Unitas was so good and Amos was so good for a while because they got rid of the ball fast. That was their only protection. But they still took a beating. Even after they released the ball, they took a beating. I mean, I remember watching the clip. And all I was going to say, the best offense for Brady in that day and that era would have been the San Diego Chargers because Dan Fouts obviously played in that in the protections that uh, um, San Diego used would have uh, woke with Don Curiel. They that would have helped him. That would have helped him. He would have had to be in where he got protection and make sure that nobody because they were going to try to hit him. They were going to try to get after him. But but Mac, no you're mentioning history the NFL during that time, especially the '60s. Uh, they'd show ga- the games of the week, like the highlights, like a one-hour package, and they glorified the defensive end screaming the quarterback from the blind side yet. Yeah. From the blind side, he hit him and just devastate him, and the NFL glorified that. That was like the big thing. That was the appeal to the game. That is true. That is true. And it, it, until it, recently, it is. until the last – about 10 years, remember they had the, the hardest hits? They used to have yeah. the videotapes. Uh, videotapes, Robert, for you. is what Oh, I is. love that. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, we had the DHS. I ain't that young. <laughs> <laughs> Steve but, uh, Ronnie Lott. <laughs> yeah. I love they those. had the hardest hits, you remember? Yeah. yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, if you think about it, I remember watching a clip where the Cleveland Brown defender actually picked Terry Bradshaw up in the air and oh, slammed yeah. him on his head. I mean – this is the way it was. I mean, not that he didn't get penalized for it. He got a 15-yard penalty, but who cares? I mean, you know, the damage is done. And and all I'm saying, and again, I'm not taking nothing away from Brady, Mahomes, and, and Marino, I think, played during a different generation anyway. These quarterbacks would not have had the time, the convenience of sliding, the convenience of just tiptoeing out of bounds and the players coming up on them. You were fair game. Anytime you had that ball. And they would have took a beating. Now, whether they would have lived up under that pressure or not, I don't know. All I'm saying is when we talk about old versus new, I know yeah. one thing for sure. Johnny Unitas with these rules and with 17, 16, 17 games might have been or might be the greatest quarterback we've ever seen. And that's all I'm trying to say. So um, yeah. we'll never know. We'll never know. No, but, it's but just you, I, you make a valid point because yeah. Johnny U was, I mean, 
every kid wanted to play. If they played football, they always wanted to be Giant Uniteds. I mean, yeah. that's how, what he did. I mean, he almost, almost thrown for 3,500 3, yards during that era and and and, and breaking that 3,000 mark when it was all running and that type of play was was encouraged. I mean, like I said, I've seen Johnny United take a beating too. Trust me, I've seen. Yeah, him. and he played on one of the. We talk about all these great teams. That had to be one of the greatest teams. Well, he had great receivers: Raymond Berry, you yeah. know, Jimmy Orr. Oh, yeah, I mean, defensively, offensively, that is unbelievable talent on that John team. Mackey, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and well, I mean, yeah. he doesn't mention Shaq Tatum. We should yeah. do a list one time: the ten biggest cheap shot artists in the history of the NFL. <laughs> <laughs> well, you thought Tatum, Tatum was a cheap shot artist? I think he was a tough guy. I don't think he was a cheap yeah. shot artist. I think I he just too. was intimidating people. Yes. I do too. Cheap shot is a different thing. You see, you know cheap shot artists, and they do have that. On Maybe Romanowski, teams. somebody like yeah, that. Yeah, that's when I think about. Somebody yeah, like that. Friend, that's when I think about. My old friend Bill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um anyway, Robert. Yeah. Uh to get to the 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 uh blast of the two topics with you. What player do you think? I, I asked Pags the most player that influenced was influential with the Eagles, and he named a great one, Ben uh, uh, Chuck Bednark. I mean, he was he was unbelievable. What player do you think really led into modern day football? I mean, the way we see it today, I know there's a lot of players, but if you had to yeah. pick one that you would say, well, this guy is really what was the beginning of the modern football era? Who would you pick? The uh, as far as influential player. Yes. Um, you know, if you say it like that, you look at a guy like Peyton Manning, uh, he caused, and Tom Brady says this in interviews, guys, you can check it for yourself, that we use some of their packages. Uh, the way Peyton used Dallas Clark, Tom Brady says we use those uh, packages. We stole some of their, and, and even Brett Favre, he says, when I started watching this Peyton Manning guy, I started doing more film study. And if you guys recall, Favre went in a, a slump in his career. We're talking about four and five interceptions. They just kept playing him. But he said, this is his words, not mine, that I didn't study that much. But I, I, I got to cut these interceptions down. I got to be a student of the game like this guy, Peyton Manning. And then once Peyton came in, Brady just made it better. And uh, he so really the, the quarterback being the air quote student of the game. Make look at the game now, by guys. We've got a lot of academics running organizations now. Uh, Ivy League guys, uh, all over the league, you got more Ivy League general managers. So I think a lot of that started with Peyton Manning's attention. Sometimes it's too much in the playoffs, <laughs> he overthought it, he got too intense. But I really think that he is uh, one of the most influential players as far as a study standpoint uh, that I can remember. But, Robert, see, I, I, I hear what you're saying, but yeah. Boomer Esiason called his own plays. Jim yeah. Kelly called his own plays. These guys were at success in the NFL, and they called yeah. him. And, and just like Jack mentioned, back in the early times in the NFL, the, coach, the players, a lot of time, if they weren't shuttling guards, the quarterbacks were calling their own plays. 
So yeah. I, I don't know if it was Peyton Manning. Listen, it's, well, it's, people it's, say it's, that he studied it to a different level, you know. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah. the study. Interesting point. I mean, I, 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 you could argue it, but it's an interesting point. I mean, it's from the study part, and and maybe from breaking down film, maybe he was better than anybody else. I yeah, don't know. and that's what I think. That's what he was really good at because he understood how to attack defenses. Yeah, probably better than anybody else. I mean, he knew how you want to try to uh, the coverages and everything. And I think that's where he took it to another. Right, right. That's what I was getting at. Even Ray Lewis said, "Man, I don't know how he made that throw." This guy had to practice that a million times when mm -hmm. he's going against Peyton Manning. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, maybe part of its image, Peyton Manning was fantastic. I'm not disputing that. But you mean to tell me there were another quarterbacks who didn't study film as much as he did, one as intense as him. But the perception was that Peyton Manning, you know, stood out amongst, you know, all the quarterbacks. But I think, there, you know, I think any top-of-the-line NFL quarterback is very intense, like a Russell Wilson. You mean to tell me he doesn't study film the same way as Peyton but he's, Manning? Well, I, I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, Robert, Peyton Manning really started it by his film study and understanding yeah. defenses. He could have been a basically a coordinator and explained right. how defenses would come. Because I remember seeing things where he would try to be the first one there at the um, stadium, and he would study. He'd be there at 5 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to do on uh saturday practice and dungy had to say no that's family day and he's like no i want to get out here and throw the football yeah <laughs> yeah really. he's almost uh, overly obsessive but uh, he did he, grow up around football with his dad yeah. and archie manning that's, the truth. And that's so. the truth so one last topic for you robert yeah. just your opinion i mean we've had a lot of fantastic super bowls in the history of football um what do you think was the best Super Bowl ever? Well, uh, in my opinion, guys, I think it was 42. Uh, Dallas, or excuse me, Dallas. Giants and uh, the Patriots, the old 708. Uh, the, the Patriots going for a perfect season. They set a lot of offensive records that year. The Giants, the ultimate underdog, 12-point uh, underdog. They were the, the second in 20 years by the highest margin being underdog other than the the Rams and the Patriots in the 2001-2002 was 14 that was 12 point underdogs this giant team went through uh three road wild card games including a really really cold overtime NFC championship game at Green Bay that year if you guys recall yeah and you know the David Tyree catch i mean it was really dramatic you talk about a game made for NFL films that was the best 17-14 game I've ever seen in Super Bowl. Well, you think that was better than the wide right kick with Scott Norwood? That was an intense game, you know, settled on the last play. And that was a heck of a game. I mean, historically, yeah. I understand what you're saying. The Giants beating the Patriots deprived the Patriots of an unbeaten season. So historically, I'll agree with you. But as far as an actual better game, what do you think? Steve Christie, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I, I can well, see it, was, it was Norwood that was well, right. Norwood, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah Scott yeah. Norwood. Yeah. So, I just uh, – you look at that Patriot game, the thing about the Giants, they had to play perfect. No turnovers to beat the great Tom Brady. Randy Moss, Wes Welker, Bill Belichick. They had to – you. if you blinked, 
as if I'm watching this as a fan, if the Giants have one really bad play, this game is over with. Mm-hmm. And you're holding your breath for every snap of that game. I'm back. You had to have been jumping out of your seat uh, on that game. No I'm yeah, kind of surprised. Yeah. I thought you'd say Pittsburgh Steelers, one of their Super Bowl winners. Well, I, nah, just that that particular Super Bowl, with not just the catch. I mean, the perfect throw. I mean, you played the first catch. You know, well, the I, defensive line played flawlessly. I don't think they had a penalty in that game. Well, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, Rob, Mac, our own Jim Jeff Coat took part in the most embarrassing play in Super Bowl history. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Leon Lett, yeah. Well, Jim did not tell Leon Lett to do that. I guarantee you. No, no, no. That's not true. Hey, Robert, I want to thank you for coming in. We got an author, if you want to stick around and watch, uh, a Michael Cambridge, who uh, has wrote books on NFL, the 69 Chiefs, Chuck Noll, and how NFL became America's sport, not just through the game, but marketing and, and management. He said he's going to make it in. So uh, after you, he'll be on. Um, okay. And he's he's unbelievable, unbelievable author. So we're going to have him in after you. And uh, have a great one. Uh, Robert, thanks for coming in as you always do. Everybody, check out Sportscope at his site. He's on Instagram. He's all over the place. Just look up Sportscope. And I'm going to get that information for you, Robert. I meant to get it. Uh, oh, okay. okay. Hey, guys, have a good show. All right. You too, you. All right. Thanks for coming. Just Here let me go, Robert. very quickly. At most inspiring play in Super Bowl history, what Don Beebe did. Let me look on the positive instead of the negative. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, boy, Jack, Jack. <laughs> Guys, we're going to take our first time out on the other side. We have scheduled to come in. And Michael McCambridge, a good Irishman, who will be coming in, and he wrote about a lot of things about football, has been written up as one of the best authors in Sports Illustrated by NFL Films, really knows his stuff. He's agreed to come on. So hopefully we'll have him on for about 20 minutes. Then we'll talk a little bit about the Jets, Dallas, and Giants because uh, – We're all fans of them, and we'll talk a little bit about their history. So stay with us, folks. We're going to get back right after these messages. Yeah, there you are. You worked too hard, you ate too much. The cheesecake made you greedy. But your aching head and stomach here, this message from O'Feedy. armed forces and you're looking for a way to continue serving your fellow veterans in your community, then join AMVETS. Each year, AMVETS members volunteer millions of hours at VA healthcare facilities from coast to coast, helping to improve the lives of their fellow veterans through the VA Voluntary Services Program. AMVETS posts and departments also participate in a wide variety of community service projects, ranging from Americanism in our schools to supporting the Special Olympics and Boy Scouts of America. If you no longer wear the uniform today, you can still serve through the AMVETS by joining today at AMVETS.org. It certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger place to give a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? 
And Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. You're Wendy's kind of people. Hi, Grandma. What's for dinner? Hey, honey, I'm making stew tonight. Ooh, can Nina come over? I'm not sure about our new friend. I wonder if there's been any drinking going on. Alcohol at her age can lead to so many bad things. I've been meaning to ask you, what would happen if someone offered you a drink? Grandma! This is hard. She's so young. But I know I need to talk to her about it now before someone tries to give her alcohol. If anyone ever does offer you a drink, I want you to say no. I have too much respect for my family and I don't want to get in trouble. Okay. Really? I promise, Grandma. I love you too. Okay, how about tasting the stew and telling me what you think? Some children may try alcohol as young as nine years old. It's not too early to talk about drinking. For tips on how to begin the conversation, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. That's underagedrinking.samhsa.gov. This message brought to you by SAMHSA and this station. Job is done. This guy will be ready to dig into something mighty good to eat. How do you handle a hungry man? The manhandlers. One of the manhandlers is Campbell's vegetable beef. Gets a man-sized supper off to a good hot start. Mmm, good. The manhandlers. This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning. You're listening to the Mac and Jack Sports Show on Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Mac Jack and Jim Big Football Show as we're going through the history of the NFL. And, folks, we got a treat for you. Backstage right now, we got Michael McCambridge. He wrote 69 Chiefs, story about Chuck Knoll biography. Also wrote about Lamar Hunt. But we have him on here today to talk a little bit about his, his big book that was, uh, you know, forwarded or signed off on by NFL film, Films, Sports Illustrated. I mean, this book is great, guys. I want to have him on to talk a little bit about America's Game, epic story of how pro football captured a nation. So let's bring up Michael and see how he's doing. Good morning, Good morning Michael. Good morning, Good morning so, gentlemen. Thanks for having morning. me on. Uh, no problem at all, Michael. We've been going through... Everything from back in the 1920s when football started, uh, how it was basically a rugby game and turned into the to the, the game it is now, going through a little bit about the history of the teams and 
in some games. And and when I had this idea, Linda found you, and I said that that's who we need on this show to come in and talk. We need a, a guy that actually wrote a great story uh, called a master storyteller. As a matter of fact, was one of the quotes about the NFL. So tell tell the viewers and tell us a little bit about your book and what got you interested in writing this, Michael. The, the inspiration for America's Game was sometime in the 90s, I kept hearing this notion that as soon as somebody pointed a, a television camera at a football field, the NFL instantly became number one. And I remember thinking to myself, it couldn't have been as simple as that. There had to be something, there had to be something more involved with that. And I remember thinking, during Major League Baseball strike in 1994 and some of the problems that hockey and the NBA had, I remember thinking, you know, the, the structure here makes sense. The competitive balance makes sense. The idea of slotted scheduling makes sense. And all those things didn't come around by accident. They had to do with design, with the philosophy of how a league is, is built and how it's structured. And so that sent me back to try to write a modern history of the NFL. Now, um, one of the first decisions I made was I didn't want to go all the way back to 1920s and, and Racine, Wisconsin, and, you know, Canton, Ohio, and the leather helmets, because it felt like the, the real demarcation point was the end of World War II, and the return of integration to pro football. And as I spent time researching, I felt like you could draw a direct line to Daniel Reeves, the owner of the then Cleveland Rams, having won the 1945 NFL championship, hmm. wanting to move the team out to Los Angeles. Does that sound familiar at all? Owner wants to move a team to Los Angeles. And then this this series of events that went on that sort of forced the Rams hand and forced them to dedicate themselves to reintegrating the NFL with Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. And meanwhile, back in Cleveland, that same off season, Paul Brown, very low pro, very low key signs, Marion Motley and Bill Willis. And suddenly, you know, 12 years before the Giants and Dodgers moved to the West Coast, the National Football League is truly a national league again with a team in Los Angeles. And a year before Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in Major League Baseball, the NFL and the All-American Football Conference are integrated again. So that felt like the place to start telling the story. And then it was through Burt Bill's commissionership in the late 50s, um, all through the 50s, and then the arrival of Pete Rozelle, which, as you guys know, changed a lot of things. Do you, how much significance, uh, Michael, do you put in that 1958 overtime game uh, between the Colts and the Giants, the first really national televised game that, you know, decided in overtime, I think it was the first overtime in championship, you know, you had the great Johnny Unitas against that great Giant defense, and the Giants were ahead and Johnny Unitas did the two-minute drill, and Sam Huff said, we, we knew what he was going to do, we just couldn't stop him. I mean, right. how much significance was that game uh, bringing the NFL to, to, to prime time into the national spotlight? I think it was hugely significant. Um, it was kind of a culmination. One of the things I learned was that attendance in the NFL 
increased every year during the 1950s. Um, and that game particularly, because you had the, you had the glamour team of the NFL then, the New York Giants, and this fascinating up-and-coming team with this galvanizing figure of, of Johnny Unitas. And then you had something you just hadn't had before. You had overtime. Um, I tell the story in my introduction that, you know, Pat Summerall's on the sideline, um, I think it was with uh, Kyle Rote Sr., and said, well, what happens now? And Summerall said, I, I think now we keep playing. <laughs> because they, they just had no experience with it. But the other thing that's really significant about the 58 title game, um, besides all the things you mentioned of it being great on TV and great drama, that same day that that game was going on, a young Texan named Lamar Hunt was down in Houston at the Southwest Conference basketball tournament. And he was sitting on his hotel bed to watch the end of the game. And he had all this money from his father's trust. His dad was the richest man in the world. And he'd been debating, do I want to invest in Major League Baseball? Do I want to invest in pro football? And he said that game for him, there was like a light bulb that went on. And he said, you know, all this football is so great. And it plays well on television. And who yeah. knew what that meant? So that was, that was really the, the lightning bolt that started the, uh, the American Football League which of course led to the Super Bowl, which led to all the things we've seen in the, in the last week and, and multi-million dollar potato chip commercials. Michael, there was a little bit of a mystery in that 1958 game before Alan Amici, I think it was, scored the game-winning touchdown in overtime. There was a delay and they claimed there was a fan on the field, but the real reason was said to be NBC lost power or something, and they used the excuse of a fan being on the field. What was the story behind that? It wasn't a fan, and forgive me for forgetting the gentleman's name, but it was an NBC employee who was was down on the field, and the the Colts fans in one of the end zone were getting so excited, they kept jumping up and down, and one of the cables got disconnected. It pulled the plug. So, <laughs> so there was, you know, all of America was just seeing the – you know, the, the blank screen with technical difficulties that you used to see in the 60s and 70s. Right. And to buy time, the NBC rep just started staggering on the field like he was some drunken fan and, <laughs> you know, eluded the police. And in the time it took to get him off, um, they wound up getting the uh, wound up getting the connection reattached. And so I think I'd have to go back and, and forgive me. I didn't I don't have my book on hand right here. Um, but I, but I think they lost one or two plays, but they they made it back in time for Amici's touchdown to end the game. Yeah, can I just ask one more thing about that game? I had revisionist history, but I'm going to go there with it. Frank Gifford claims there never should have been the two minute drill. He got in the first down, and the officials placed the ball the wrong way. Is there any way to go back in time like they do today in the NFL and check to see whether Gifford really did get the first down or should have had it? And then maybe Johnny, you shouldn't have even had that chance to have the two minute drill, meaning the Giants would have won the NFL championship instead of the Colts. I'm afraid they didn't have pylon cam or instant replay or anything like that back in 1958. So, no, I believe that's one of those. You know, some mysteries are meant to remain mysteries. Yes. Uh, but, but when I interviewed him, Gifford, Gifford was, you know, he said, he said, I, 
you know, I wasn't furious. I didn't have a tantrum, but I had a first down. <laughs> you know, it's um, funny that you say these things because over when you look at the history of obviously the NFL, the things that I notice is the names, the teams, what they call them, the, like the purple people eaters. Right. Doomsday defense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, obviously big blue uh, right. and green. They used to have those nicknames. They don't have those anymore. They don't have those things because that's what made the NFL. Obviously the Pittsburgh Steelers, the steel curtain. They yep. used to have those things and it's that that's the changes, but that brought the popularity of it because kids love that stuff. They love that stuff. Well, Jim, you probably know about this more than I do, but I think part of that has to do with the relative declining influence of print media yes. and the rise of electronic media. No because question. you don't have, you know, back in the 60s and for much of the 70s, the print media set the agenda. And so the print media could say New York Sack Exchange, yep, yep. New York Curtain, or something like that. Yes. And these days, it's it's. I, I think there's less of that that texture that you describe because it is so much an electronically driven medium. Yeah, and even in the personalities, um, yeah. I think that what helped them was Joe Namath helped mm -hmm. him. We talk about that all the time, but he was flamboyant. He was in a big city of New York to success. For the NFL to be successful, you had to have those media centers. Right. You had to have success with those teams in those media centers. And I think that's one of the reasons those games were so big. You talked about 58 Colts Giants. Same thing with Super Bowl three. It wasn't just a big upset. It was arguably the biggest upset in pro football history on the biggest stage with a team from the biggest city. Yes. And the most controversial player. All you know, it. It like it wouldn't have been the same if it was the, you know, Cincinnati Bengals who'd won Super Bowl three, right? I agree. I agree. You yeah. know, you you talk about the marketing and management, and Jane, Jamie Paggle, the Philly sports guy, brings up one facet I want to talk to you about. The other one is the Dallas Cowboys tech strand. Um, you know, uh, NFL Films came out. I'm not, I'm not sure the exact year, but this was a a show where they, you know, they took teams and they broke them down and games and broke them down. They put music to it. It was almost like a symphony, right? And it was a very smart thing, very good marketing uh, for the NFL. And then you turn to the Dallas Cowboys. And in their 70s, when they started, when they got the first professional cheerleaders that went around the world, when when they, you know, got the second game and they got the second game on, the NFL, on Thanksgiving, it brought football not only to that one game they used to have every week nationally, but now they got two games and they got a great marketing tool with the cheerleaders that are going around the world to, to us shows in different countries. And then John Fassenda, uh, I, I don't even think I'm saying his name right, but he does the NFL films with music and stuff like that. The marketing, I think aspect of the NFL is like no other nationally. They really knew what to do with their product especially when the 70s came into the 80s and so on, where they took advantage of, 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 of the play, the complex game, and made it a TV game. Am I right what I'm saying, Michael? I think certainly, and I think Tech Schramm is important. I think, if anything, even more important is Schramm's close friend, Pete Rozelle, um, because he did recognize, uh, I think that the moment that, to me, was crucial was 
Pete Rozelle in 1961, followed Lamar Hunt's lead in 1960, and packaged the NFL's television deal. That meant that teams in Pittsburgh got the same money as teams in Chicago and New York. It created, a, especially as the TV money rose, created the ability of, of competitive balance. Mm -hmm. But to speak to your point and Tech Schramm, here was somebody who'd worked with CBS, who understood business and recognized that the demographic of NFL fans was highly attractive to advertisers. And also, as Jim Jeffcoat can attest, those Cowboys fans who were plugged in were plugged all the way in. Yes. And they, they were. Yes. It wasn't just enough for them to read four or five stories in the Dallas Morning News and listen to the radio. They also needed their Dallas Cowboys Insiders Newsweekly. And they wanted to see the Cowboys at the, you know, new auto dealership opening or whatever it was. That's exactly right. And they would turn out to see the cheerleaders open a shopping mall or whatever it was. And that sense of, I think Roselle understood this in the macro sense, and Shram definitely understood it at the franchise level, this sense of fans were captivated and the game could stand up to that extended scrutiny that it was like layers of an onion. You know, you could have people who wouldn't know whether the football was blown up or stuffed, who could sit and enjoy Monday night football. And then you could have nerds like me who wanted to understand why the plays were called what they were, whether the holes were odd to the right and even to the left or even to the right and odd to the left. You know, it was it, it football had could contain multitudes. It could go to several several different levels. And Shram definitely understood that. But Michael, so much of its entertainment, weren't the Cowboys the first truly charismatic team in the NFL? I'm not talking about Joe Namath, a charismatic player, charismatic team with Coach Landry, with all those different offenses that were never seen before. Well, you know, you could start with Coach Landry. You could also go all the way back to the, the Colts of the late 50s. Definitely, if you've seen the movie Diner, you know the sort of, hold on the collective imagination of the city of Baltimore had. Um, Namath and the Jets had their own mystique. Um, I grew up in Kansas City and, you know, Hank Stram and those great yeah. Chiefs team of the late 60s. Yeah. First team in pro football in which a majority of the starters were African-American in Super Bowl IV. Yeah. Um, th those were teams. Now, what you did have, to your point, after the merger in 1970, the NFL becomes even more corporate and even more standardized. And the sort of idiosyncrasies that you'd had even in some places in the 60s, like in Wrigley Field, where part of the end zone wasn't there because they just didn't have room for it. Those things go away. And <clears throat> the game becomes much more corporate and much more standardized. And so the doubleheader games, to your point, are so frequently in Dallas on a Sunday afternoon with the Cowboys and Landry and Staubach and, and they become a staple on Thanksgiving day, you know, Detroit had been a staple for decades, but Dallas became a staple because as I said, Tech Schramm's closest friend was Pete Roselle. <laughs> but didn't uh, they help transition and you were talking about it until electronic uh, media. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. as opposed to print. They were a little bit ahead of the curve when they went to the electronic because they yeah. were utilizing that. And as the NFL became more popular, more yeah. people would tune in because just like you said, the games on uh, Sunday, the double headers and everything. And yeah. that was an interesting thing as you've seen games. Because be honest with you, when I grew up, growing up on the East Coast, I didn't like the Cowboys because when right. you looked at TV, you saw the Cowboys every oh. week. All the time. That's why yeah. they're so popular, Jim. That's why they were so popular worldwide. Yeah, but I'm just saying he did it. Yeah. He was a he was a genius as far he as was. that. Yeah. Now, now, Michael, I want to get to. I know we got to let you go here because we we, we get already at 20 minutes, but you're fascinating. So I I, mm-hmm. I love having you on. You kept saying reintegrated the NFL. What do you mean by reintegrated? I mean, well, was it know, there were well, there were African American players in the NFL in the 20s and the beginning of the okay. 30s. And then there became, and you know, it's still difficult to get a uh, to get a straight answer. It's not like there was a smoking gun. It's not like there was in the minutes of the league meeting, the owners said, "Okay, no more, no more players of color." But just after uh, Joe Lillard and around 1933, um, there were suddenly no more jobs for African American players, even though you had, um, as you had throughout the century amazing black players from even big time colleges who didn't get a chance. And Kenny Washington coming out of UCLA was, was one of the the most glaring examples of, he was, he was arguably the best player in the country, but uh, nobody had time for him. So I think it, it is, it is a credit to Hallie Harding, Harding and some of the other members of the black print media in the forties to make their case and go to that Los Angeles Coliseum commission meeting and ask the question, which was long overdue to be asked, how can you make, how can you call this public facility a public facility when you are denying entry um, as a league to players of color? And it was, as I said, it was under pressure that Chili Walsh, the Rams GM said, I can vow today that if we can play in the Coliseum, we will give Kenny Washington a tryout. And that's what brought Kenny Washington and Woody Strode into the NFL in 1946. Well, see, I, I just learned something. I, ne- I did not know that there were uh, other, other, uh, other, there was before uh, in the early oh, yeah. days of NFL player colors. Yeah, I know Jim Thorpe Pollard was. A- and, and the great Duke Slater, who yeah, George right yeah. the best lineman he'd ever seen. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. So, so, uh, way ahead of baseball at his early stages. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. So, Michael, I, I want to thank you for coming on. I mean, having you on is a real treat. I mean, someone knowledgeable as you, and 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 I know we didn't – I mean, I got 100 questions for you, but I'm going to let you go. Um, appreciate you having having you on. Love to have you on again if you got some time down the road and talk a little Definitely. bit more about your book and, 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 the, and the NFL as it grew, you know, into the 80s and stuff like that. I would love to do that if, if you're up for it. Michael, we don't have time now because you're going off, but I was at that 1969 Jet-Chief playoff game sitting in the back of the end zone where the Chiefs scored their touchdown, you know, to go ahead and win 13-6. Yes, Jack. That was a very windy, cold day. Oh, every pass by Joe Namath was – if there wasn't a win, we would have won that game. I'm a Jet fan. We would have beaten the Chiefs. I'll leave you with this. There was a picture in Sports Illustrated from that game of Joe with a giant cape over his back 
And the two biggest mittens I've ever seen in, in my life, these two huge orange mittens that he had his hands in, it was clear it was pretty miserable Michael, that day. Michael, it's not known, but he was actually throwing with those mittens in the game. That's why <laughs> Again, Michael, we appreciate you coming in. Thank you, Michael. In. This has been a lot of knowledge, and thank you. Thanks, gentlemen. Enjoyed it. Take care. Bye-bye. All, right. All right. So there you that go. That was folks. really good. Oh yeah, Jim. We got we got plenty out there we could bring on as we keep going around. Uh, I when I read it, when I read uh, part of the book, the 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 intro or the begin, I said this guy's got to come up because not only are you looking at players like we were, he was going to talk about the marketing aspect. No, I is, want to talk about what, yeah, what he was talking about history of the NFL. One player, Marlon the Magician Briscoe, uh, a black quarterback for the Denver Broncos, okay, in the AFL. They turned him into a wide receiver. You know, that was the mentality mentality of the time, unfortunately. He was a decent quarterback, guys, kind of close to the caliber, Teddy Bridgewater, not quite a franchise quarterback, but good enough to hold his spot. Now, as it were, how it worked out for him when they turned him to wide receiver, he got traded and he was part of those two Miami Dolphins Super Bowl teams, the unbeaten team and the one that repeated after. Now, if you're Marlon Briscoe, are you happy or not happy? Because if they kept you as a quarterback, you would have been on a losing team, but you would have gotten to do what you wanted to do. But because you basically, you know, because of the discrimination at the time, you kind of, he kind of got rewarded by being on a historical unbeaten team and the one that repeated. So what do you think Marlon Briscoe's real mindset was? Would he have rather just stayed as a quarterback? Let's say he couldn't win, but he could have quarterbacked still. What do you guys think? I think he would have rather win the games. If he's truly in that time and era being a competitor, you want to win. And like you said, he won two uh, Super Bowls. He was the first starting African American quarterback in NFL history. Marlon yeah, Bishop. yeah, yeah. So if it was have, if it was on a successful team, but could he have carved out more of a legacy? He had a nine year career. Let's say he played quarterback all those years, he would have had more of an individual legacy. But then again, he wouldn't have had those Super Bowl rings and yeah. in in that experience. So. And that's what I think. Um, it depends on what's important to him. Is winning yeah. important to him or individual awards? No. Is uh, Mac there? Yeah, Mac. Uh, I don't know what the answer is myself. Very I compare it a little to um, Earl Monroe going yeah. to the Knicks and winning, you know, the championships. Championship, you know, giving up his own individuality. Yeah. To an extent, you know, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how I'd feel if I win his spot. I really don't. Well, well let's 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 ponder, let's ponder that over a break, guys. So we get out of here and get a quick break because we still got a lot of stuff to cover. Um, the interesting thing about that is Earl Morrow was the backup quarterback, and if Earl Morrow got hurt and uh Bob Greasy got hurt, maybe he would have gone in at quarterback, Jack. Who knows, right? I mean, that could have been something that that would have been very interesting back in you know, the 1972 season, 71, 72 season. Folks, we'll be right back after these messages. McDonald's is our kind of place. It's such a heavy place. 
saying that Matt's going to be this perfect kid, but if I don't tell him what we expect and why he shouldn't drink, how's he going to know? You think kids that age really listen? <laughs> they never admit it, Bill, but they hear more than you think. Talk. They hear you. For more information about talking with kids about underage drinking, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. I mean, you can see right now, without LeBron, Lakers are, are struggling. Let me tell you about a team I hate, all right? I know the Dallas Cowboy fan is here, so I had to make sure he knew how much I hate this Oh, team. I'm ready. I've often said that the people who run baseball, they try very hard to ruin it. I'm from Brooklyn. I don't have a problem saying it to his face. Oh, from Brooklyn. Hey, isn't he? Jack and Jim Big Football Show, our last one for the year until football season starts creeping up back on us. Again, we'll have all the big stories of the NFL as we go along. Of course, they're always making news. I think we've had a pretty pretty entertaining and informative show today uh, talking about the history of the NFL. Um, Pickles brought up something that I wanted to ask him, but of course, you didn't even start talking and, and things. Monday Night Football was huge. And changing yeah. football with all the cameras and 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 all the different angles. They 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 went. I think there was like what they were saying. It was like five cameras, and Monday Night Football had like fifty or something ridiculous, where they could show every angle and very entertaining with Frank Gifford, Howard Cosell, and uh, Don Meredith who, who kicked it off. Um, so that really helped change football too. Um, and and I think Jamie brings up a good point too. Um, you know that that football. 
would play every day of the week until Congress and knocked it. They wanted to play in 1964. That forced football to only play on Sundays to make room for uh, local and college games. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that we don't know about. Lamar Lamar Hunt was a great a great yes. uh, thing that brought up. I mean, the guy had a lot to do with not only uh, starting the Kansas City Chiefs, but he had a big active role in, uh, in football itself. There's things that happen behind the scenes that a lot of people just don't know about to make this league what it is today. And Lamar Hunt actually owned the Dallas Texans first. Right, right. And they shared yeah, the same yeah. with the Cowboys, which we're going to get yeah. to here in a little bit. Um, Guys, I mean – when you look at football today, it's changed a lot from when it first started. Is there, is there anything that you think should be the same as it was throughout the history? Me, I think you, I think they took a lot of the physicality away from it and a lot of the blocking and basics uh, to go more towards an arena football game. I wish – I mean, I understand the lawsuits and injuries and stuff like that uh, as far as the uh, – concussion situation goes but to me like boxing if you're going to play football i think you should accept that that that's part of the game and and if you don't want to play football there's a lot of different things you could play being an athlete you are and and i think that's taken away a little bit about from the game today what do you think uh jim and then jack yeah well what bothers me is that i love the nicknames because that's what i grew up with and the nicknames that were in football. And, you know, just like we talked, Ted, Mad Stark, and Hendrix, Randy, uh, the Master, White, and then Ed Too Tall Jones. You don't see that uh, anymore. And you had all these nicknames, and that was a fun thing because that's what you knew these guys by, by their nicknames. And that Roger the Dodger, as yeah. a, you know, things like that. And that was fun. You know, as a kid, you look at that, and that's how you remember them but you don't have that anymore. And just the the flavor of the game has changed, just like you said, the physical nature, which in ways is good because you don't want to see anybody have issues later on in life. But um, there's other things, and just they change the game. That's why I don't want to change the overtime rule because they change everything about the game. And some of this stuff is the beauty of the game, the beauty of playing football, beauty just like you said it having that opportunity to play and have fun at it and things like that. And you keep changing things. It's becoming a game just like the Pro Bowl that we don't even recognize. Yeah. I'll tell you what bothers me. Too many of these games are being decided on penalties. Now, if it's a legitimate penalty that affects the play, I'm okay with it. But a lot of times these penalties don't really affect the play. Okay. The play would have taken place as was, but because someone committed a penalty that might not even be that close to the ball, you know, the play is called back. And that's what the NFL is. Someone, you know, they break off a long play and you wait to see it for it to be confirmed. And a lot of times these officials, they throw a flag way too late. One player complains to the official, then he throws the flag. It's like he needs it's as if he mm -hmm. needs a few seconds to analyze it in his head. The other thing, too, I feel for the cornerbacks in the NFL. I mean, they're at such a disadvantage. Yes. They get, I mean, they're going against world class athletes who are the wide receivers who know exactly what they're going to do. 
and the and yet the cornerback has the slightest contact and he gets flagged so uh, i'd like to see that element change real quick to talk about that um they did a survey or they did an analysis of cornerbacks and wide receivers wide receivers the average height is now six three six four average weight is around 220 cornerbacks haven't grown they're still around five and nine and a half five ten you have the six two guys but for the majority of them, uh, they didn't grow like that position, the wide receiver position. And you're putting them at even a more of a disadvantage, like you said, Jack. Yeah, I listen, I agree. So let's I'll tell you the one element. I just want to say the one element, guys, of the game that's improved greatly as far as the players. I mean, two areas stand out, one good, one bad. The kickers, the field goal kickers are awesome compared to years ago. I mean, they on average are going to kick the ball 10 yards longer than years ago, 10, 12 yards longer. Also, the offensive lines are the worst I've ever seen, you know, in all my years. it's Virtually every team doesn't have a good offensive line. I don't know what the problem is there. Is it the pass rushes have just gotten better? I don't know what the answer is, but the offensive lines have been terrible. No, the answer is that they don't hit in practice anymore. That's the answer, Jack, to me. And and you know you've got to you've got to block live. You can only hit a dummy so many times or go half speed and get the real effect of the game. I I would I would hate to block a dummy all week or go half speed and then you have to go up against Jim Jeff going on Sunday. It's ridiculous. I mean, Jim why would have gotten about fifty more sacks in his career? Fifty six. I'm not a defending the offensive lineman, but you make a good point, Mac. Is that they don't hit, but they don't see the speed of the game because yeah. it's harder to go backwards than to go forward. It is and hard. Even, even going forward, Jim. I mean, you got to have that unity on that line where everybody's in sync. And you can't do that at half speed, and you can't do that against dummies. You got to do it against live people, or you're just not going to get the effect of it. So, um, yeah. I, I think that's a huge. Just as I said before, I think that's a huge uh, problem with the game today. So let's take a quick look at the Dallas Cowboys. It came in existence in 1960. Tom Landry left as a defensive coordinator of the Giants. That's why they had such great defenses back then, uh, and went to Dallas. And it was the first modern franchise team at the time. Uh, as as Jim said, they the Dallas Texans were there first uh, with Lamar Hunt, who later moved to Kansas City, and Dallas actually shared the same stadium with the Texans for a while until they got their thing, and and Kansas City moved. Um, they were first going to be called the Steers, and then they were going to be called the Dallas Rangers. But of course, you had the you had the Texas Rangers down there, and, and at the time they were called the Dallas Rangers. So they finally announced the team as before they started as the Cowboys. So the rise of the Cowboys was slow but steady. And in the late 60s, they had Green Bay Packers on the ropes twice in the championship game. Once they had the ball first and goal, and they couldn't get it in. And the second time in the Ice Bowl, the famous Ice Bowl, where Green Bay won on that last play with a quarterback sneak with Bart Starr. So if Dallas had won both those games and they, they were right in position to do it, I mean, what would we be saying about the Green Bay Packers and what would we be saying about the Dallas Cowboys right now? Tom Landry might be looked at higher than, than Vince Lombardi right now because they went out all those championships in a row. So it's interesting how the games uh, play out 
and 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 it changes the legacy of people and the teams itself. Dallas finally gets in the Super Bowl. They lose to the Colts um, on that that field goal. I forget the guy's name still. But and Jim O'Brien. Thank you, Jim O'Brien. That was it. That was the blunder. Call the blunder bowl. There were so many turnovers and mistakes. It was about the worst played Super Bowl by two teams combined. Yeah, and, and you and if you looked at one of the touchdowns United threw, the Dallas defensive back had it right yeah. in his hands, and it went off his hands right, right yeah. Both receiver, and that's how he got his touchdown. So I mean, again, here's Dallas knocking on the door. Can't do it. They were known as not being able to win the big one at the time. Right, yes. they get there and they can't win. They break and that was the only game. Super Bowl that a deep, uh, a player on the losing team got the um, obviously the MVP of it. I think it was Chuck Howley, wasn't it? It was Chuck yeah. Howley. Yeah, and mm-hmm. and they finally they finally cash in against the Dolphins. They thoroughly beat them twenty four to three. That's when they had uh, Dwayne Thomas and they had Calvin Hill. And, yeah, yeah. and I think I think Starbuck. Was it Starbuck or Morton? One of them got replaced during that year or something because Craig Morton was the I think it was Craig Morton who was uh, replaced by Starbuck because eventually Craig Morton went to the Giants and then he went to uh, Denver. Yeah, yeah and so, uh, there's a subplot to that later on. Craig Morton would play in the Super Bowl as a starting quarterback for Denver against the Cowboys, but yes. it didn't work out for him. The Cowboys, no. you know, beat him decisively. Yes, and, and and that was the Orange Crush defense that I crushed. Yeah, right? uh, yeah the Cowboys at that time. So yeah, so so Dallas Dallas was Dallas was in the late sixties and the seventies. They went to the Super Bowls against the Steelers, and and to me, two of the greatest Super Bowls I've ever seen. I mean, you you can put that right up with the Giants and Patriots. To me, Jackie Smith, if he doesn't jump, jump yes. drop that touchdown pass, drop the, yes. But that's 50-50. That ball was thrown low, too. Oh, stop oh, it. Fairness. It's, 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 no, he should have caught it. But it yeah. could have been thrown. That even Starbuck says 50% me, 50% Jack. And he was right. Starbuck's a nice guy because uh, if it was any other quarterback, he would have been screaming at the guy. How can you drop something to hit you right in the chest as as he was going down to make that catch? Big Ken would have been very understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, if you think about it, listen, Cowboys could have won. Uh, they were in that game, both those games. So, I mean, that's how close the Cowboys were to being the, the, the greatest franchise in the history of, of football and wins. So, I mean, you, it's just one play, two plays that changes the outlook of everything. That's what's so great about football, right? I mean, you think about all the Super Bowls you saw that if – you know, David Tyree doesn't make that catch. If, you know, this guy doesn't drop the ball. I mean, things change in one play. And it's just, oh, yeah. It's crazy, Jim. So It is crazy because I was watching um, uh, NFL Network um, just last night, and they had the Tennessee-St. Louis. And I never realized back then the inches. If um, McNabb threw the pass, I don't remember the receiver's name, but he was inches away from the goal line, and that would have tied the game up. Twenty, they were, St. Louis had won 23-16. And we and would I mean, have if, yeah, if, if he just let him another foot, he was in. Exactly. The, guy the guy wouldn't have caught him. And exactly. Oh, that last play again, but that was a brilliant play call because everyone thought the ball was going to be thrown in the end zone. Last play yep, of the yep, game, yep. you get a guy's momentum running, and you know, and that 
one of the great tackles. Yes, he was. Yeah. And Pickles gives us the name Dyson. Dyson, Dyson, yes, right, Dyson right. Yes. Thank you, Pickles. Thank you. Thank you, so, Pickles. So, so, folks, let's talk a little bit about the Jets, originally known as the Titans, Jack. I mean, the, the Jets, the Jets to me are, are like a team. I don't want to say like the Mets, but they, they, they are so close sometimes. They had that big win against the Colts. They were playing Denver in 86 in the, in, in the mud. They had a chance to win that game. If they won, they would have played the Giants in the Super Bowl. Who knows what would have happened then? Because I think they were better than the Broncos if it wasn't for the mud and everything. I think the Jets had a better overall team, a better defense anyway than the Broncos had. And who knows if you guys would have beat the Giants or not, the first Subway Super Bowl, if you want to call it that. And then in those games in the championships, when you guys, uh, you know, you guys were there, you were right in the championship game. You could have, if you won those two, you went to the Super Bowl. Who knows what would have happened? So the Jets, I think, had a lot of, I don't want to call it bad luck, but again, certain plays, certain games, and the Jets could have been in four Super Bowls, Jack. Uh, I don't think it was as close as you're making it out to be. And I, unfortunately, I don't think the Jets have had like bad luck. I think the Broncos were a better team, even though we got off to a good start that game. And for a while it looked like, you know, it could be our day. We had the game two. We played the Miami Dolphins in the mud bowl. It seemed like we were ready to beat when Richard Todd was the starting quarterback and the conditions were absolutely horrendous i wonder what's worse to play in a driving rain or just like mud or snow i mean jim would you know could speak better on that than me with traction and of course rex ryan he took the jets to a couple of uh afc championship games in a row peyton manning and the colts were better team what bothered me a little was the following year when the jets lost to the steelers in the afc championship uh game I could sense just watching on TV, the Steelers came out flying. They had so much more intensity than the Jets, and it played out. And they basically won the game with their first half start. Mm -hmm. And then the Jets started cutting into the lead and, you know, and came short. But something about the intensity, I mean, I can't speak to it, but I'm sure Jim has played in certain games maybe a handful of games stick out in your mind where the intensity was greater than the other games. You absolutely came out flying, like all out, you know, and you were able to sustain it for a while. And that's what happened to the Jets in that game against the Steelers. It seemed they just came out flying and the Jets didn't. And that was a difference. The Jet fan base too. Jim said something that was interesting a while ago. I asked him, which was the least intimidating place to play? Maybe you were joking with me, Jim, when you said the Meadowlands, you know, uh, with the Jet games, okay, at least. Uh, but uh, something about the fan base with the Jets. The Jets have good fans, but they don't seem to have the intense fans like in the dog pound that the Cleveland Browns have or some other places. So I think certain franchises – have certain type of fans, I you agree. can stamp them as being extremely intense. I mean, they, I they add something to the team. And I think that rubs off on the players a little bit, okay? But the Jets don't quite have that, I don't think. I agree. Now, I had a question to ask you about the Jets. Who was the greatest coach in Jets history? 
Well, I mean, you'd have to say Weeb Eubank, the one Super Bowl sure. that they won. You know, we were talking about with our guests before the 1958 championship game. They had three pivotal guys 10 years later who would be with the Jets. Don Maynard, who returned kicks for the New York Giants, wasn't one of their key players, but returned kicks. The coach, of course, Weeb Eubank, the Baltimore Colt coach, and Johnny Sampo, one of my favorites, the uh, defensive back, cornerback for the New York Jets. He was the Jets' defensive captain. He was the original trash talker, Johnny Sampo. He would he would smack players around, call them every name in the book to just try, and he even kept a notebook with uh, with certain categories. One of the categories was intimidation with quarterbacks. Do he rate them one to five? Five would be the, the highest. And the one guy he could get to was Frank Gifford. Frank Gifford hated it when Johnny Sample would say, you're too pretty to play this game. You should be in Hollywood doing the movies. Oh. He gave Frank Gifford a zero for intimidation. You know, lowest <laughs> possible grade. Because when, when the receivers start to talk back to him, he knew he had them. But the one guy Johnny Sample couldn't intimidate was Fred Bolitnikoff because as hard as he hit Fred Bolitnikoff, Bolitnikoff seemed to enjoy it, you know, would kind of laugh. And he got, and he actually got inside Johnny Sample's head because he'd say, why can't I intimidate this guy? So, so there you have it for that. Real quick on the Giants, right? The Giants in the 50s had a great defense uh you know, they they came up short a lot, too. And then they went through that period in the, in the 60s and early 70s where uh, they were just awful. I mean, they had some great players. They had Tarkin and that played for them for a while. Even oh, Craig yeah. Morton played for them for a yeah, while. Need, uh, Ron Johnson, Bob Tucker, uh, Homer Jones, one of the uh, pioneers in as wide receivers go in football, being big and fast and the first one to actually spike the football, but I follow them anyway. I loved, I loved the Giants. Uh, I knew every player and I watched every week and they finally cashed in when Bill Parcells got there and he put together a staff that had him relevant all the way through to 19 to the early 1990s. And when Dan Reeves took over and of course they finally came back again in the 2000, right. And Tom Coughlin and, and Eli Manning, who uh, I think is really underrated. He took a, a heck of a beating uh, in some of those years uh, that the Giants offensive line was almost as bad as it is now, but he just had the, he had the uh, mentality and he was tough and played every, every game. And, and that's why I give him a lot of credit for what he's done over his career, not only as far as touchdowns and yardage passing, but um, he played on a lot of bad teams and kept them relevant. And then big, big rivalry against uh, the Cowboys, uh, when he was playing, I mean, them, them games were always, always great coming down to the last, last play. Um, now they're just, they're just, uh, they're a mess again. Hopefully, they get it back together. I, I meant to talk about one game, Mac. We talked with Phil Sims about it. Uh, Jim, you played in that game when the Cowboys were trying to repeat. Okay, Super Bowl champs. You played the Giants in a regular season game late to see who would. Who was going to win the division? And the, and I don't know how well you remember that we game. Went into overtime. Won in yeah. overtime. I always felt had the Giants won that game, and part of me says they should have won that game. Okay, had they won that game, they would have been division champs. Psychologically, 
that plays a big role in things. You know, they laid it all out on the field that game. Had they won and they, and they were Eastern Division champions, they would have gone into the playoffs in a better frame of mind. And I think they would have gotten a bye as well. But by, once they lost you that game, they were finished for the playoffs because mentally I couldn't see them getting up and coming up with the same performance. And that's how it turned out. You guys and the Cowboys went and repeated as Super Bowl champions. But I always thought had the Giants won that game, wow, maybe that would have been a little bit of a setback mentally for the Cowboys, not being division champs, losing was, to the Giants. There's no question. That was a must-win game. And I, we, that was the game where um, Emmett, they knocked his shoulder out. And he played basically with one shoulder. And a lot of things went on that game for whatever reason. Because I remember it had snowed in New York in the Meadowlands. They had moved the snow and everything. And it was a great game by both teams. And yeah. somebody had to lose. And unfortunately, or fortunately for me, the Cowboys won that game uh, and the Giants lost. But you're right. That would have uh, definitely affected us because we hadn't been playing well at the end of the season that year. And that we had to win that game to get home field advantage. Yeah. And, and Phil said, he thinks if they won and got home field advantage, they might've had a shot to go in the Super Bowl. but that game, that game just, that game just knocked them out of whack. So folks, so folks, thanks for joining us. We're going to cut out just a little early. I appreciate you coming in. We got a, uh, quite a bit of views today, quite a bit of comments. Uh, great guests uh, going over, you know, what the NFL was and what it is now, but for better or for worse, it's still the best game to watch in the land. And I still love it more than any other sport that I watch. I just kind of hope in my own personal opinion that we kind of go back a little bit and maybe start hitting yes. a little bit more in practice and maybe start hitting a little bit more during the game, change the rules a little bit where a quarterback can't fake sliding and keep running or fake going out of bounds and keep running. Let's at least make it even. And if you're going to punish a defensive uh, player for lowering his, his head to hit somebody, you should punish the offensive player for doing the same thing. Because when you're going down to tackle somebody, he lowers his head and you lower your head, it's the same thing. So if you're mm -hmm. going to do it for a defensive linebacker, do it for the running back too. I know it's impossible, but maybe you ought to try that and see how that works out and see how much that helps. Let's even up the score, defense versus offense. Let's make it fair and let the games get will only get better, I think. Jack had a great comment about the penalties. The refs shouldn't decide the game. They shouldn't. There's no reason for them to decide the game. It's let them play unless it's egregious, unless it affects the play, unless it, unless it, it, it is so bad that that's why the play worked. And as Jim said, let's bring back some nicknames. Let's think of some nicknames for some of these teams and players. The Bengals, what they did. The Rams, what they did. Back then, the fun bunch. Purple people. Mm -hmm. is yeah. All these all these nicknames made the game fun. And I think it's it's important, as Jim said, for the kids. Because remember, without the kids coming up and watching this, the sport would dwindle just like baseball has. So yes. folks, have a great day. Have a great Sunday. We'll be back next week with this week in sports as we'll go over all the big sto stories during the week. Of course, the NBA moves to the front. Hockey kind of moves to the front. And baseball does not know what it's doing. So, folks, <laughs> have have a great day. And we'll right. see you Thursday on the Mac and Jack Sports Show. Tomorrow, Jack is on Glove Fist with Frank Lotirzo, an excellent boxing show. And Jim, every Wednesday, 8 p.m., is on Jim Jim. Shop. 7 o'clock tomorrow. Tune in, 7 o'clock. Yes, for Jack, 7 p.m. Yeah. Eastern. 
So everybody, make sure you tune into Roku or the YouTube channel for those shows. Have a great day, everybody. Have a great day.